wonderful feast of the Ascension of the Lord. We've got two versions today. We've got Luke's version and, and Matthew's version. And, and Luke begins with where he left off in his gospel. Actually, this is the second volume of the gospel of Luke. And, and we left him off at the resurrection and appearing to the disciples on the road to Emmaus and the breaking of the bread and then and that, that night to Simon and the other 11. And, and today he's ascending up into heaven. He's appeared to them for the last 40 days. That's Luke's version. Mark's is quite different. As a matter of fact, Mark does not seem to have Jesus appear to the disciples until this moment. All they've got now is the word of the women. The women are the first ones that are aware of the resurrection of the Christ, and they go to the disciples and they say, here's his orders. He says, you are to go now from here to Galilee. Of course, Galilee is the place where everything happened, where he taught, where the gospel was proclaimed, where the good news is, was, is elucidated to everybody who could have ears to hear. Go back there. Go back to Galilee, and he will then appear to you. It's a 60-mile walk between Jerusalem and Galilee, and I don't know if it took all 40 days to get there. 40 is a sacred number, you know, there were 40 years in the, in the, in the desert wandering around. It's a, it should have been a, a one-week trip. It took him 40 years to get through the desert. 40 days, Jesus is out in the middle of the desert being tempted by the devil. Um, and then 40 days after the resurrection, he gives them this order to go up to the mountain. Why the mountain? Well, the mountain is the trysting place between the divine and the human. It's where... It's where uh, Abraham is asked to sacrifice his son. It's where, where Moses receives the, the Ten Commandments. It's where Jesus brings up James and John uh, and, and Peter to be transfigured before them. And so the mountain is the place where you're going to meet God. And so they go to the meet, mountain, and they meet him. And they meet him, and he, they do two things, two sentences. And the second sentence I find most amazing. First one is, they worshiped. They are actually seeing the risen Lord. And then they doubted. I always found that sentence a little disconcerting, a little discombobulating. I mean, they've just seen the risen Lord. Why, why are they doubting? And, and some scripture scholars will say, well, they, they've got this little bit of a doubt because, uh, well, it's been 40 days and they have not seen him and this is the first time, so they're not quite sure if their eyes are playing tricks on them. And I, I, I don't think so. I think the doubting has something more important to say to them and I think really something to say to us as well. Uh, uh, Brian McLaren, uh, wonderful evangelical theologian, wrote a book called Faith After Doubt, and that doubt is not necessarily the enemy. And we've always thought of doubt as the enemy. How could we be a person of faith if we, if we, if we doubt? And McLaren's argument is, oh, no, no, doubt is absolutely necessary for the faith. As a matter of fact, without faith, without doubt, there probably would be no faith. But we're so used to, well, we're so used to the story of doubting Thomas, who says, I, I, I don't believe it. I'm, I'm going to question this, and I will not see it until I, you know, put my fingers in the nail prints and my hand in the side, and then I'll believe. And then, of course, and Jesus even underlines it by saying, you know, Thomas, uh, 
Blessed are you who have now seen, but more blessed are those who have not seen, but still believe. And so doubt's gotten a, a pretty bad name, and I think it's probably time that to, to, to redeem it a little bit. I remember the story when I was down in Hopkins Park of the old preacher who said on one Sunday, he says, you know, if we have enough faith, we can walk on water, and I'm going to try that. So he took his whole congregation to Lake Michigan, got out on a little rowboat. He had a whole white suit on, and he says, if you don't doubt, you can walk on the water. And he says, he says to the people, do you doubt? We don't doubt. They said, preacher, do you doubt? I don't doubt. I don't doubt. They say he stepped over the boat and sunk right into the lake. And he came up spitting. And they said, what happened, preacher? He says, I guess I didn't have enough faith. Why? He says, well, I'm, I'm wearing my swimming suit underneath my suit. <laughs> so poor faith has gotten a bum rap. And yet, faith is, is, is not faith without the catalyst that encourages our faith. And, 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 and doubt is that, that catalyst that's going to make us say, ooh, is it really the way that I thought it was? Is, is there something more that I'm, I'm not seeing? Uh, matter of fact, you can probably have a little bit of a doubt when you compare Luke's account of the resurrection and ascension to Matthew's account. How come they don't agree? Why are they so radically different? And so he says we can divide in our, our, our faith journey into four different categories. And of course, they're, they're arbitrary. There's all kinds of different categories for the faith journey. But here's what he, he divides it in between simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and then finally, uh, harmony or, or solidarity. And he says we, we begin very, very simple. Our faith is very simple. Those of us of a certain age learned our faith from the Baltimore Catechism. Here is the answer. We're going to give you the answer first. You believe in the answer, and you're going to be just fine. You're going to be a member of our group, and our group is always right. Here is, the, here is the faith, and it's, it's an authority figure. You know, it was sister, it was father, it was, it was an authority figure, who, or even our parents, our number one authority figures, who said, this is what the truth is. You believe in this. And I, there is such a wonderful security about that. It's dualistic thinking. Either you're on the in-group or you're on the out-group, but, oh, but as long as you are on that little in-group, you know, very simply you are. You're safe. It's, it's a safe little world until you discover that it's maybe not quite so safe. Maybe there is a little bit a different way of seeing things than the, the Catholic way that we were taught as little children who divided the world then at that point between Catholics and publics. And I, I learned at a very early age that maybe, maybe my faith wasn't the only one, it was just the best one. Because we lived on the west side of Chicago, near right across the street from where Douglas Park is today. And our neighborhood was a little Italian-Jewish neighborhood. And of course, the Italians are so ethnocentric, they are convinced that nobody else has good food but them. Yeah. As a matter of fact, they divide food into two categories, that which is marvelously Italian, and the other word in which is a really denigrating term, it's called Medican. <laughs> so the food is either Italian or it's Medican. 
And if it's Mary Connor, it's not very good. Well, Sheldon Kirshner's mother made the most best gefettelfish and, and, and matzo soup and, and all kinds of wonderful things. And I thought, oh my goodness, they, they, they see through a whole different world than we see, except that, except that uh, we're right and they're wrong. Right? <laughs> Life might be complex. There might be a whole lot more stuff going on, but, but we still are kind of right, you know. The old story about the man who dies and goes to heaven and St. Peter's giving him a tour and he goes by and he sees the, the Methodists and the Methodists are dancing because on earth they were not allowed to dance at all. And he walks by a little further and he sees the Baptists and the Baptists are having a little southern comfort and they're just having a great old time because they never drank when they were on earth. He's going by another door and Peter goes, shh, shh, quiet, quiet, quiet. He says, why? He says, the Catholics are in there. They don't think anybody else is here. <laughs> and in the old days, we believed that. Oh, yeah, there were other groups, and, and there were things, and we needed to learn about it. We needed to know about all of the, the way the things, the, the, that, little, that little world worked. And, and, and the more we learned, the better it was. We, we wanted to see things in historical perspective. Uh, and and, and it, we went from authority figures to, to people like a, a coach. You know? Coach is going to show you the very best way to survive in the world in which you are living. This diverse world, it's a diverse world, but you're still in the, in the right world. And, 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 and if you've ever read a self-help book, they're always divided in five easy steps to a perfect life. You know? And if you follow these steps, then you're going to aptly have a perfect life or seven easy steps to fall asleep early at night and all kinds of different things. And, and it's, it's complex, but you're still there until, until, and it works. Until it doesn't work. Until the doubt sets in. Until something goes wrong. We spend literally the first half of our life climbing the ladder of success. And as you've heard me say so many times before, Merton says we find at one point we've got it against the wrong wall. And our world collapses. And it's going to collapse in many different ways. It may be in a, heal, a, a, a sickness, an addiction, a divorce, and maybe just in a thousand different ways. And all of a sudden, we are perplexed because... Well, one of my favorite quotes was from Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, right before she died. And she was talking to, uh, and she knew she was going to die, and she was talking to a, a reporter, and she says, I, I don't understand it. I, I did everything right. I followed all the rules. I did everything right. And I'm going to die. And I don't know why. That's a real doubt. That's a real anxiety. That's a real questioning. Why? Why is this going on? And the funeral of a 21-year-old Friday night who had overdosed and 500 people were there and the only question we had on our minds was, why? And there's no easy, superficial, glib answer that anybody can give to that. That, should, that was tragic in every sense of the world. And yet, and yet, in the midst of that questioning, in the midst of that confusion, we have an inv invitation to ascend. I said at the beginning of Mass today, this, this holy day, this ascension is all about one thing learning to learn how to let go. 
not to hold on. And that means the little sureties that we had when we were children or even the complexities that we had when we think we can actually figure everything out by doing everything right to, to falling into a mystery that really is beyond our, our comprehension. And it's not that we eschew and throw away all of the past. That's the worst thing we can do is throw away the things of our simplicity and even our complexity. It's like, a, it's like the circles in a, in a, in a tree. It's, it's still there, but it's getting broader and bigger and in many ways more vulnerable yet stronger. When we are in our simple ways, it's our group against the world. And now we begin to discover that we are not that independent. When we fall through, when we ascend, when we are able to let go of these absolute sureties, then we, we, we enter into not dualistic consciousness, that's where we begin, but into what's called unitive consciousness. And this consciousness begins to show us that we're not that different. We're not that different. Mother Teresa, everywhere she went, she kept on saying, everywhere I go, I see people. I don't see white people, black people, African people. I see people. As a matter of fact, she never once tried to convert a Hindu. As a matter of fact, she said, when you're done, go back and be the very best Hindu you can be. Go deep into where you are, and they will converge. And that's the unitive consciousness of the mystic. And I really believe, you know, Kaur Rahner said before he died, in the future, and that's where we are right now, either we are going to be atheists or mystics. Because at that point of perplexion, that point when we don't understand, that point where we don't get it, we have a choice. And that's the choice to walk away. And you know, and you've already heard, that the number one denomination in the United States today are the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, none of the above. When these young people, mostly uh, uh, many young people, come up to that wall and say, I can't do it anymore. Yeah, I, I'm just going to let it go. None of the above. Or, or, we can let whatever has been binding us and holding us down ascend and let us bless us and then enter into a mystery that is beyond our comprehension. We don't need to all. We don't have to have all the Catholic answers. We don't. And what we need to do is to believe, is to have faith, is to have hope. Uh, the doubt is the catalyst for those things. And, and the choice really is ours, depending on how we respond to the grace. And when you do respond to the grace, now you're prepared. As Jesus ascended up on the mountaintop where the, where the divine and the human meet, he's preparing the disciples and he's preparing us for what's coming next. He's not going up to heaven. He's not going anywhere. What he's going to do is send forth his very stuff to us. Next week, we better dance ecstatically and speak in the, all the tongues of the world 
because the tongues of the world need to begin to understand what we have to say. And what we have to say is, here is the prayer, here is the goal, here is we are called to be one, interdependent. We are a web. When one hurts, all hurts. When one is set free, all are set free. We need to work for that. We need to work for it beginning in our own lives, in our own families, in our own community, in our own world. We need to be part of that incredible web of life infused by the great, marvelous, incredible spirit of God.